Today we turn in God's word to Job chapter 40, and we'll read the entirety of Job 40 verse 6 to chapter 42 verse 6. There's also an outline on page 4 if you'd like to follow along. Hear now God's inerrant, inspired, infallible, authoritative word. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him, where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus trees cover him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by the eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Can you draw out Leviathan? With a fish hook, or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird, or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. 
Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is hard as a stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth, there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So far, the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to our hearts and to our minds today by his Holy Spirit. Nearly all true and sound wisdom consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Do you know who said that? John Calvin. Know God, know yourself. Know yourself to know your need of God. Know God to know that you are not God. That's what basically he's saying there, isn't it? And we know that there is one true triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. At the end of Job, the Lord is telling Job, and us today as well, this is who I am. He's coming to Job with a series of rhetorical questions. We started them last week, over 70 of them. And this is, again, a trial by ordeal, so to speak, meaning God is trying to teach Job and us where true wisdom lies. And he addresses Job again just like last time. Do you see the similarities? He comes, the Lord does, in a whirlwind. That's a theophany, a visible display of God. He challenges Job to something like a wrestling match. Now remember, Scripture is accommodated language to us. As Calvin said, it's God speaking to us in baby talk in a way we can understand. This is not literally 
God saying, I'm going to wrestle you, Job, but rather God bringing Job to this trial by ordeal and saying, okay, Job, if this is what you want, this is what in some ways you'll get. <laughs> Let's see, Job, how things go as you search for wisdom. You've got some more things to learn here, Job. And today, in God's amazing mercy, we remember that. That's how he's speaking to Job and to us. He's not punishing Job. He's assuring Job of grace that God is for Job, not against Job. And he's teaching Job today about justice and evil. First, we see that God humbles Job. Chapter 40, verse 8, is all really what the whole book in some ways is about. Job is saying, as he's suffering, I don't think you're just, God. I'm troubled here. Remember what the friend said? If someone is suffering, it's because they've done something to cause the suffering. God is just. So, That must be why Job is suffering. Job says, I haven't sinned to cause this, so does that mean God is unjust? And it's a false dilemma, isn't it? But Job here has said to God, I think that I want to take you to court. And God is saying, if you want that, Job, let's see how that goes. Do you have an arm like I do? Can you speak, Job, and then create by virtue of you speaking? That's what God does. Job, power and justice go together. To establish justice, power is needed. What's going on here? Well, God is humbling Job. He's not saying, Job, you sinned and that's why you're suffering. That's the friends. That's not true. He's telling Job, you've wanted to justify yourself so you can't have it both ways. As David Strain says, Job, if you want to be judge and king, then you don't need a deliverer. Just save yourself then. If you think that you can be the cosmic ruler of the universe, then you really don't need a savior. Loved ones, in our pride, some people have wasted years of their life thinking and acting this way, thinking that I'm God, I don't need a savior, And I don't really need to bow down to the God who made me. There's a story that David Strain tells. He was sharing the gospel with a woman. He and his wife were teaching her of the Lord Jesus and his saving grace. And this woman's conscience seemed to be pricked. She went off on vacation. She came back and she had grown entirely cold to the gospel. He and his wife decided to talk a little bit more to her. They found out that she said... Simply, I cannot believe in a God with so narrow and restrictive a sexual ethic. She put God in the dock, and she sat as judge and jury on him and dismissed him as irrelevant. Reducing God in our minds has been a sin since the fall of Adam. We think we know better. We think that we can stand above God against God, and critique God in his word. And in many ways, God is saying to Job, verse 11 of chapter 41, who has first given to me that I should repay him? God's not obligated here because he owns everything. So the idea of the friends 
that suffering is a result of sin, God's saying that doesn't work. That's not true. In fact, God's saying, I'm wise and powerful. I do whatever in my sovereign plan is best. And this verse, chapter 41, 11, is picked up by Paul in Romans 11. In Romans, it's talking of God's sovereignty over the purposes of salvation to the ends of the earth. Here, it's talking about God's sovereign over the world he created. But the point's the same, isn't it? God is strong and mighty. We are not. God is God, and we are not. So how can Job stand before Almighty God and take God to court? He can't. But what about two creatures? How about a shot at Behemoth and Leviathan? Second, God instructs Job. So from God's justice now to raging evil, we meet Behemoth a name that means beast, or as Christopher Ashe says, super beast. It's in the plural. Kids, do you remember the beast on the sandlot, that big dog? Well, this is nothing like that. Has nothing to do with that. That's just a strange point I brought up. (laughs) Beast meaning something that is beyond what we have typically seen. He eats grass like an ox, He's hungry. His belly and loins are strong. He's immensely powerful. He has what it says here, limbs that are bronze and iron and bones that are mighty. He's the first of the works of God. Not necessarily saying he's the first creature God created, but preeminent. So something about him is different than other creatures. You don't mess with behemoth. But there is one who has power over him, verse 19, chapter 40, his maker, and a sword that his maker has. That's the one person that can deal with him. He lies under the water in the marsh. He leaves the river to go onto the mountain to get food, but he doesn't eat meat. He eats vegetables and grass. He's a herbivore. Even if the water is turbulent, he's not agitated. He can't drown. The picture of the poetry, and that's key here. This is poetry. The picture of that is that he could swallow the whole river. Imagine that, kids. He can't be captured. He is powerful, hungry, untamable by humans, but tameable by God. Who is he? Second, we see Leviathan. What's Leviathan about? Chapter 41. His name in the Hebrew means coiled or twisted. Sounds maybe like a snake. In the Greek Old Testament, it's translated dragon. He's worse than behemoth. 34 verses to describe him. God asks Job to behold behemoth once. He asks Job seven questions about Leviathan. You can't catch him like a fish, kids. You don't go down to Bush Lake and pull out Leviathan. He won't make a covenant with you. A very strange chapter there, isn't it? Or verse in verse 4. And you're not going to say to your daughter, Honey, come here. I've got a leash. You can take Leviathan for a walk. Verse 5. Very odd, isn't it? Job is invited here 
to try to catch him and to spear him, but it's impossible. Spears and harpoons can't penetrate him. No weapon can harm him. And verse 10, Ash brings this out. Again, it sounds like the Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? You're not going to go down and stir him up from the depths. Do you remember the hobbit who was foolish enough to stir up the Balrog? It sounds a lot like this. You're not going to do that. He has jaws that spell terror. He has a mouth that speaks forth what? Fire. Out of his nostrils comes smoke. I read this to our kids this week, and I asked them, what does this sound like to you? One of our kids said, it sounds like the creature that Eustace was turned into in the voyage of the Dawn Treader. Who's that? A dragon. Sounds like smog from The Hobbit. He's a threat to man. His underside, you think maybe you can get him there? Nope, you're not going to attack him underneath him. When he walks, he leaves marks and tracks in the mud and in the water. And verse 33 of chapter 41, he's unlike any other creature. Even Behemoth cannot compare to Leviathan. So what are they? We need to be humble here and realize we don't know for sure. Is that the end? It's not. What are the possible views? Some say they are prehistoric animals, dinosaurs of a sort, that Behemoth is like a brontosaurus or a sauropod, that Leviathan is like a T-Rex, Others say, well, behemoth actually sounds more like an elephant or a hippopotamus. Derek Thomas is among those who say that, and Thomas says, when you look at a hippo, it's like a committee put this together. All sorts of strange pieces, and what an odd-looking animal. And that's kind of the point here. These are almost cartoonish-like descriptions of these creatures. Thomas says Leviathan, then, could be a crocodile or a whale. If that's true, the point here is that God is saying to Job, Job, you're trying to approach me and bring me to court. You don't even approach one of these creatures I made. You're afraid of the crocodile. How much more ought you to fear a meeting with God? You need grace, Job. That's what he's saying. And that's true here throughout. My ways are incomprehensible, Job. Is that what's being said here? I think that's part of it. As I began the study of this book, that was probably where I was leaning, and I may be convinced of it still. And that might be where you are, and that's where a lot of solid teachers are, right right here and right now and throughout history. In fact, the, the primary commentary on the book of Job that many refer to, that guy's right here. What's the second possible view? That they are mythological creatures, So they're mythic symbols of forces of chaos. Richard Belcher says this, used in ancient Near Eastern myths. And and this is actually a fact here. In ancient times, as Van Dyke says, Leviathan was the name of a mythical, demonic sea creature to be greatly feared, who stirs up havoc on earth. He says that in the day of Job, Leviathan would be as well known to children as Pinocchio or Goldilocks are today. Just kind of the folklore of that day. 
What does this mean? If this is the view, then these forces of chaos are overcome by pagan gods, by Baal in the Canaanite tradition, by Marduk in the Babylonian Enuma Elish, by Horus in Egyptian mythology. Is that what's going on here? No, I don't think so. Does Job perhaps refer to this pagan literature elsewhere? He might. Chapter 3, verse 8, he mentions Leviathan, and it could be in that case that he's referring to this thing. Not saying that he's believing that, but remember, Job curses the day of his, death, of his birth, and he brings up Leviathan. What's a third possible view? That they are literal animals with mythic metaphors, Belcher says. What does that mean? That these are creatures drawn from animals like the hippopotamus or the crocodile, but the poetic language of these chapters is symbolic of something beyond just animals. The discussion comes right after Job is challenging God to establish justice. Something bigger is perhaps going on here. Here's what Howell Jones says, and I agree with him on these three key points. First, they are God's creatures. Second, they're not like the creatures mentioned in the first speech of God. Remember those other creatures, kids? They were either land or sea creatures. Behemoth and Leviathan are found where? In land and in water. They're amphibious. And what is the sea associated with in the Bible? Chaos. Evil. Third, Jones says, the animals are not just independent of man, they are hostile to humans. That is key as you look at one verse we didn't mention. Look at verse 34 of chapter 41. God ends his speech. He says, he, Leviathan, is king over all the sons of pride. The world is full of arrogant, prideful people. But Leviathan is the proudest of them all, the ruler of them all. He says, I am the greatest. And I would agree with those who say that this clinches it. Humbly, I would say Leviathan is Satan. You might disagree. There are many people who disagree. He's king of the sons of pride. And here's where this is so true in our own lives. We are never more like Satan than when we are trying to elevate ourselves in pride. And we are never more like Jesus than when we are humbled in meekness. Now, how does the rest of the Bible talk of Leviathan? Psalm 104, it mentions him as a sea creature that God has made, and the sea is his playpen. So that's led people to think maybe it sounds like a whale. Isaiah, chapter 27, though, talks of him as a fleeing serpent, a twisting serpent, the dragon that's in the sea, and then it says God will punish Leviathan one day. So that's Isaiah 27. Psalm 74 brings up Leviathan, and it talks of the exodus. Very interesting. The psalmist sees the exodus as a battle, not primarily between God and Pharaoh, but between God and Leviathan. 
You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Ezekiel 29 speaks of Pharaoh as a great sea monster lurking in the Nile. And there's a lot of parallels here with Job, even talking about hooks and jaws and similar type of language. And then there's the book of Revelation. Chapter 12, verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Revelation 20. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him. So Ash says, and I agree with him, Leviathan is a strange and terrifying sea monster, many-headed, fire-breathing, a dragon, who conveys to us the terror and evil of Satan himself. That's Ash taking all these passages and saying, what does the Bible teach us about this? So Leviathan is the archenemy of God, the prince of the power of evil, the God of this world, the one who is the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2. Another reason Ash says this is because how did the book of Job begin? with Satan, right? So now, if you see the end of the book, here is Satan, again, except in poetic literature, described as Leviathan. We need to be humble on this, but that's a very possible interpretation. How about behemoth? Now people say, well, that sounds a lot like a dinosaur. It could be a brontosaurus, but again, let's let Scripture interpret Scripture for us. This is not as clear, the scholars say, but again, the book of Revelation helps, chapters 12 and 13. There's echoes there of Job. Two beasts, a sea beast, a land beast. Both are demonic agents connected with the dragon, Satan. All of these made war on the Savior and on God's people, just as happened in the book of Job. So Joan says, excuse me, it's possible that the amphibious behemoth, a plural noun, remember, a plural of majesty, is further described and divided into the two beasts of Revelation 13. The only power that can overcome behemoth is what? A sword fashioned by its maker, chapter 40, verse 19. In Revelation, a sharp sword comes from the mouth of the rider on the white horse to destroy the false prophet and the beast. Now, what's more important than exactly identifying these creatures, Thomas says, is why does God spend 44 verses talking about them? That's interesting, isn't it? What does that have to do with Job's problem? And I think he brings us here to the point of justice and evil. God is giving the big picture of reality here. And he's telling us, I reign over all things. I made the great dragon Leviathan. He's standing to devour God's people. But there's no way that Leviathan can defeat God. Maybe you're here and you're struggling if you're a Christian or not. Maybe you're watching online, you're wondering... Is the Christian faith true? Maybe you're wrestling with the problem of evil. 
God is good. God is sovereign. Why is there so much suffering in the world? Why am I suffering so much? And the Bible tells us over and again, evil is under God's sovereign control. It will be destroyed and defeated. Satan is a created being, much too strong for humans, but no match for God. Throughout the book of Job, we see this type of shadow and promise that is given. Someone must fulfill all righteousness. Complete satisfaction needs to be made for human sin in order to undo the works of the devil. It's not until the New Testament that we learn what it cost God to win the victory over Leviathan. It's won paradoxically on the cross. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame. He triumphed over them, Colossians 2. Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And here is the message of the gospel beautifully summarized by one person. God sends a warrior king, his son, to defeat Leviathan, to crush the serpent's head, going back to Genesis 3.15. Jesus came, what does John say? to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus is the victor. How did he defeat Leviathan? By taking on human frailty, by living a perfectly righteous life, by dying in our place for our sins on the cross. And so the God who allows evil in this world for his glory is rich in mercy, compassionate in love, and the Son of God came into this world to suffer, to suffer the greatest evil possible, to rescue evil sinners like you and me, to uphold the justice of God, and this anchors our hope, loved ones, that all the joys, all the sorrows that God brings into our life are for our ultimate good. It must be that way because God is good. Third, God brings Job to repentance. Job cannot corral behemoth. He can't contain Leviathan. He's humbled and he's repentant. He says here, I know. Remember he said that earlier, chapter 19? I know my Redeemer lives. I know all of God's dealings with me are good. My mind has been renewed. I know now that there's a God-centeredness to the world. Now, he knows this in shadow. We know this even more fully, don't we? I know that God reigns in heaven. I know on my good days and on my bad days that God works all things for good for his people. As one man says, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. All the events of history are purposed for the glory of God. So wherever you stand on these animals, whether they're animals or images of Satan and his malice, the point's the same. It's driving us right here. Behemoth and Leviathan are God's creatures. The devil is God's devil. God rules them all, natural and supernatural, principalities, powers, wickedness, heavenly places, and 
no matter how evil things may appear, no matter how afraid we may be, God is in control of all things. Nothing is a threat to him. Dragons don't rule the world. Evil people and evil rulers aren't ultimately going to prevail. We're reminded here of Romans 8. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, not height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. He who is able to seize the dragon who leads the whole world astray, will be victorious. Why? Because the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. God is building his church. And what? The gates of hell, Satan himself, will not prevail against it. The church is not in defensive mode. God is building it. It's going forth by the word and by the spirit among all peoples of all nations. Job acknowledges that. He quotes God in verses 3 and 4. You know what, God, what you said of me? Yeah, that's true. I spoke of things too wonderful for me, meaning things that only God can do in his power, things that only God can understand in his wisdom. I was way too big in my own eyes, and God was way too small. So many of our problems and relationships happen that way. We're just so full of ourselves, our pride, needing to be right. Rather than serving one another in love, we demand our rights and we create havoc in our relationships among those that love us and know us the best. And that's why the church is a place that the mask can come off. No pretending. We're weak, we're broken, we're frail, we need a savior, and we need each other to help us there. As we suffer, we need to suffer with each other. When one weeps, we all weep. We don't say that we've got things figured out. We don't harshly speak to or of one another, but we give each other grace. We who have been forgiven much, forgive much by the grace of God's Spirit. Job is humbled. He's saying God knows and does what is best. And then Job in verse 5 says, now I see things. (laughs) I previously heard things. Now, that doesn't mean Job wasn't a believer before. He was. He sacrificed for his children. He worshiped the Lord as he suffered. But God is bringing him to new depths of knowing the Lord. And that's what we are to grow in as well, loved ones, knowing God, helping each other to become more mature in Christ, leading the way in that by humbly repenting. Because that's where this goes as well. Job says, the eyes of my heart basically have been enlightened, Ephesians 1. Now I repent not of sins that brought on suffering. That's the friend's false teaching. I repent of arrogantly calling into question God's justice. I repent of my pride And the key here, loved ones, is he repents while he is still suffering. He's never told the reason for his suffering. We know what Satan is doing. We're told that. Job wasn't told that. 
He repents how? In dust and in ashes. It's renewal. It's inward. The point is not just the outward dust and ashes. The point is Joel 2. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord with all of your heart. He is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. God is perfectly just. He's holy. He's righteous. God can by no means acquit the wicked. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God can't just overlook sin. Our sin is cosmic treason against the most high holy God. It violates his justice. We are evil. We are born in sin, Psalm 51 says. The Lord would be just if he did not, would not be just if he did not punish sin. Because the essence of justice is that evil gets what it deserves. If that's the end of the story, there's no hope. But God who is just is merciful. He has provided a way for our sin to be punished and for him to remain righteous without destroying us. And what is that? That's the way of the cross. The atonement is Christ satisfying divine justice by his sufferings and death in the place of sinners. And Jesus not only took the condemnation of your sin, loved ones, he came to cleanse us from sin. It's apprehending the mercy of God by the Spirit of God that leads us to repent. Pastors and elders and deacons need to lead the way in repentance. Moms and dads in homes lead the way in repentance. We are humbled as we consider the greatness of God's holiness and the wondrous mercy of God to us in Christ. We all have blind spots. So we pray, God, search us. Give me grace to believe that I'm forgiven. And part of repentance is God showing us things we didn't know before about ourselves, and it's his mercy to do that. We're all so self-deceived. My wife will point out things to me sometimes, and I think, I did not even see it. Was I that blind? Yeah. And by God's grace, she pointed it out to me in love and in tenderness and mercy, not kind of bopping them on the head. Everything that's hidden will be revealed. So what does repentance look like? Thomas Watson, it's a sight of sin. Sin must be seen for what it is, a deadly plague of the heart. It's a godly sorrow for sin, sin against a holy God, not sin, and I'm sorrowful because I got caught, not just crying tears of self-pity. It's confession of sin. What I've done is evil. It breaks God's law, and the Holy Spirit shines in the skeletons and the dust of my heart. And what do I do? By God's Spirit, we don't blow up in anger. We don't let our pride deceive us. We stop the self-justification, and we repent because, as David Strain says, we are being restored by the grace of God. We have shame over sin. Not embracing sin anymore. Because this is not the worldly shame. This is 
shame where I realize when I sin, it's because I'm just kind of pridefully impudent. I'm just pursuing that way. Godly shame. Hatred of sin. Until we hate our sin, we'll never forsake it. It's turning from sin. Not just as a theory, but experientially as a burn victim dreads fire. Turning from it. Heart change. Running away from it. Why? Because we love God. The only way we will come to hate sin is when we truly love God. And why do we love God? Because he first loved us. Because we see him in Christ, in his holiness and mercy and grace. And we are reminded that we come to him, all us who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give us rest. That's where Job is. He's repentant. He's worshiping God again. But there's more, Lord willing, next week, yet to come. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, search us and know our heart. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there be any grievous grievous way in us, O God. Lead us by your Spirit in the way of life everlasting. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.